0: Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Valiations are always a hotly debated topic in venture capital, and recent market movements have made them even more topical than usual. Dave Foreman from Pretura Ventures brings experience from over a decade of investing to talk about recent market changes, what they mean, and how he thinks about valuations as part of the investment process. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify – If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Dave Foreman, who is Managing Director at Pritura Ventures. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Hey, how are you doing? We're doing grand today, thank you. How are you?
1: Yeah, all right. All right. Just uh, glad I managed to get where I'm trying to get to with this transport stuff going on.
0: Yes, it's causing lots and lots of problems at the moment, so ho- hopefully you'll have a smoother journey home. Um, as usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you, so can you briefly us, tell us how you became involved in venture capital?
1: Yeah, so uh, my history was kind of the traditional, uh, I guess, university, then went to KPMG, then joined an investment bank um, where I was doing sort of private equity deals uh, and IPOs, and towards the end of my time there, I actually we started working with some earlier stage companies and some sort of more more sort of uh, growth orientated entrepreneurs. So I was very lucky to work with the likes of Matt Moulding when they raised their first institutional fundraising for the Huck Group. And uh, John Roberts and Steve Corns while they were trying to raise venture capital for AO before it floated. And I fell in love with working with earlier stage businesses really I just found it so much more interesting so much more there was so much more passion about what they were trying to do you know so I I begged Matt Moulding for a job at the hut and he turned me down so uh, that wasn't my greatest start into sort of the world of sort of entrepreneurship and then uh, we myself and two co-founders, we founded Pratura. And so 2011 that was. Since then, we've been backing uh, early stage businesses, predominantly in the north of England, and we've been building our own businesses. So we have kind of two parts to the Pratura group. And over, I guess, the last 10, 11 years, we've built to 500 million of assets under management and lending book, 150 people, sort of for close to 40 million of revenue. I'm not really quite sure how we've how that's all kind of happened mm-hmm. uh, and some of it's happened very recently and sort of very quickly recently uh, but you know we've we've built Protura Ventures into a you know a an established EIS venture capital business. we've got 28 businesses in our portfolio. we're passionate about backing early stage founders particularly in the north of England but not exclusively. and sort of I guess I'm still learning about everything that we're doing in in venture capital and still got lots to achieve in the future
0: hmm That all sounds excellent. And Pretura is certainly a group that seems to be up and coming in the EIS world. Thank you. So when we were chatting about getting you on, we thought that discussing valuation would be a really good thing. Now, it, it's cropped up on the podcast probably more often than any other topic, but we've never really dug into it. So while we think there's a lot going on in the world about valuation at the moment, we thought it might be a really good idea to maybe spend a few minutes On just discussing how valuation works in venture capital,
1: so... Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> big topic. I mean, it's, a, it's a big topic. There's a lot to unpack. And I think I'd start by saying there's absolutely no one right answer because valuation is as much art as it is as it is science and fundamentally comes down to where you think the business is, is heading to. I think when we sort of had the notes, one of the things you asked was, well, if you're chasing unicorns, does valuation matter? And I think you could argue if you are chasing unicorns that you know the that, that actually it's all about getting into the you know back in a business early and you you know you think it can be unicorn but personally and for for ventures protura ventures we we're not really chasing unicorns great if it happens but that's not our primary focus um you know we think you can make great returns by taking a you know a an early stage position in a business, growing it to being a really good or great business, but it doesn't have to go on and have that billion dollar valuation to make a return. And in that case, if you're not chasing those unicorns, then I think valuation becomes more and more important. The easiest way to sort of think about valuations would be to look at SaaS businesses, because I think it's more, Uh, there is more in software as a service sorry yeah uh, and within our 28 business portfolio we have about 20 of them are either software as a service or have very similar traits to a software as a service mm-hmm. business so so it might be recurring revenue but it might be transaction based rather than subscription based but fundamentally we're probably looking at it in broadly the same way and the, I, I, and if you're looking at those businesses the key metrics are obviously annualized recurring revenue, contracted annualized recurring revenue. So people call, talk about R and car, you know, upsell, ACV so annual contract value, average contract value. So sort of looking at how big are the contracts, the cost of acquisition, and the lifetime value. So that looks at kind of how much it costs to win a contract, win a customer, and the lifetime value expected from that customer. So that takes into account churn, and there's and there's ways and means of kind of uh, of sort of putting all that together and coming up with a valuation. A lot of people in this space would use the SAS Capital kind of quoted index,
0: which is then what.
1: So, SaaS Capital are, I guess, one of the early pioneers in the world of investing in SaaS. They keep track on a monthly basis of the top SaaS businesses in the world and the valuation attributed to them as a multiple of their of their ARR. And if you look back in in history over the last ten years, it started off very low. It got insanely high in the last in the last twelve months, and it's going back to kind of. I guess what you'd consider to be slightly more normal positions. And I think the big thing I always think when you look at uh sort of numbers like that, twenty twenty-one was the outlier, you know, not twenty twenty two. People talk In about this sense? great big Well, people look at if you look at all the all, you know, all businesses, all you know, the stock markets, the Nasdaq, uh, the SaaS Capital Index, all of these things that track valuations, it's very easy to look at twenty twenty two and think, you know everything has fallen through the floor because, but that's coming off such an artificially high base in 2021. When businesses are kind of, you know, running at game multiples of 20X, 20 times their, their annual revenue, you know, that, you know, you're in a frothy market. I saw something from A16Z as a, as a blog post where an A16Z are one of the biggest venture capital businesses in the world based in America. And there, in that blog post, they said that you know it was normal, or it had become normal in 2021 for a business with 20 million of annual recurring revenue, so 20 million dollars of annual recurring revenue, to be valued at two billion dollars, which is hundred hundred times revenue, and that is what deals were being done at in America. That's just nuts. Like, You've got you no, got to
0: have a hell of a amount of growth to justify that.
1: There's just no. I, I, I'll be honest. I don't think anything justifies that. And I might be I might be going against people who are far brighter and far more far more entrenched in venture and with much greater track records and importantly more assets under management. But I think that's absolutely nuts. And I guess from from our perspective, we've never been anywhere near those sort of valuations for for businesses. It's just not doesn't make any sense to me, you know, a business with 20 million of ARR is not worth 2 billion. It's not worth 2 billion today. It's not going to be worth 2 billion a year's time. It's not going to be worth 2 billion in two years time. I mean, you just, it's it's an insane valuation. When you've got those things in the market and you now look at today's valuations, you think, well, they're all 78% down. Yes. But they're actually, if you took a line from 2019 through to 2022, broadly where they were in 2019. It's just that we had this weird period in the middle where I still don't quite understand how, in the middle of a pandemic, and the you know, and the end towards the end of a pandemic, we all decided that things were worth so much more money today than they were, you know, prior to the pandemic, because it doesn't make sense to me. But that's what happened. And that has an effect. I think what it really has an effect, and sort of for those people who are who are who are sort of listening and keeping track of venture capital, you'll see lots and lots written now about SoftBank and and you know and the write down in their portfolio and the write down in the port in the in the valuation of things like Klarna. The reality is that's coming down from such a stupidly high level to a less stupidly high level that the the drop looks big but over if you if you zoom out and look at it over a sort of 10 year period actually 2022 feels much more normal than than where it's been so so that so that's why i think valuation is so such a hot topic right now mm-hmm. because there's lots and lots of stuff written in the media but what i think is important for people who are listening is on the ground in UK, in UK venture at seed to Series A stage, which is where 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 we exist, and you know, most EIS venture capital businesses would would be would be involved in. We never reach those silly highs. We're just slightly insulated from it, and on the same on the same basis, we're therefore not subject to such such massive sort of degradations in valuation. So, you know, it's at the stage we're at it's the valuations have come down a little bit founders are being more sensible you know i think it it always happens doesn't it in a in a downturn you know the quoted market comes off pretty quickly the private equity market comes off a little bit slower and the venture capital market comes off a little bit slower it takes a while for founders to kind of you know accept reality Similarly, when the market goes up, the founders of the founders of venture capital are very quick to kind of point out <laughs> the increase. So, yeah. So it, it it definitely. I think every, but that's everybody, right? Everybody's going to take advantage of things that suit their own particular argument. You, you
0: always talk your own book.
1: Always talk your own book. Um. So, and I think, and I think to be fair, some people are now in the venture capital space taking, to a certain extent, taking advantage of that themselves. I think. Within that seed to Series A sort of position, again talking about SaaS businesses or SaaS-like businesses, you know some of the venture capital businesses that would be you know that would be involved in that space are now I think taking advantage of of the opportunity to really low-ball on valuations and sort of taking the view that they'll miss a few deals, but they are very keen to you know get low valuations today. Sort of looking to We're kind of bargains almost. Yeah, but I think the reality is, those are only bargains because people aren't fighting over backing them. We always look at it and think, unless there is a specific reason why someone would only be working with us, I'd find it very odd if there wasn't at least some competition for backing a great founder. If If you think about what a VC is all about, we're all about backing great businesses and exceptional founders. We're not the only, you know, that is not in any way a unique position. Right? So, like that, everybody will say there that,
0: hundreds that, there's hundreds of people who,
1: who are trying to do that. And therefore, how do you make sure that you, you should be thinking about how you win those competitive mandates? And actually, one of the things that I'm looking at now is like, well, if it's not super competitive, what are we missing? Um, And we're very much focused and the way we're set up as a business is trying to give founders who come in through our pipeline just a different experience, a different feeling when working with us. You know, not that we're super founder, you know, we're not trying to like give away our, our the. Go in at stupidly high valuations. We're not we're not massively different on terms to everyone, but there is a feeling that we're trying to engender with with founders that we create that makes them think, yeah, I want to work with those guys. You know, we want we have a an approach for providing kind of what we call more than money post investment, where we have our operational partners who we can talk about at some point, but operational partners who can really add value. They've been there, seen so it, done it before. You know, and can really add value post, and that's the selling sort of tool to, to help founders to choose to want to work with us because if you want to work with exceptional founders and great businesses you shouldn't be on your own being the only one who's sort of seen that in them or you're unlikely to be and therefore it's all about winning a mandate if you have got a policy that now that says we're going to go in super low on valuation you might pick up some businesses at super low valuations but they're probably not the best in the market and It's no good buying into businesses at a low valuation if they aren't going to go on and grow and be great businesses in the future. So it's a really fine line. And I would be very, very nervous about us as a business holding, you know, saying we this is our maximum we can we can go on valuation because, you know, we this is we've decided this multiple of revenue is the absolute max we can pay in this market. Because I just think you'll lose some of the great, great businesses that we're, you know, we're currently backing. That's not to say go and go absolutely crazy and back, you know, and go crazy with valuations. Mm-hmm. And I think it, do, it does
0: that, raise a natural question, though, in that you mentioned earlier about you, the the, the SaaS index, which is kind of for, like the top quality businesses, but top quality businesses, we, we could all name sort of the, the slacks yeah, yeah. and the, you know whatever, you know, the the sales forces and whatever, kind of the well-known names in the US. Yeah. Um, most of the business you're backing have not proved that sort of credibility. And presumably there's a range of valuation that you're sort of saying, well, okay, this business looks promising, but this business has proven, so we give it mobile credit.
1: So what we would look at would be kind of, if you wanted to try and you know create a scientific valuation, you'd sort of start with those with those quoted multiples. You'd 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 discount to a kind of a private company discount, which takes some effects so that. And over time, the average has been about twenty-eight to thirty-three percent sort of discount as being kind of. Agreed as being that's about right. You then you either discount or actually go back up based on the growth rate. So if it's growing super, if it's growing really really quickly and doubling each year or even higher, you know that's a positive trend within the valuation yeah you try and give us a sense of like well is the addressable market big so there might be an adjustment to valuation on that and then one of the things that's really important to us is kind of in the SaaS business is net revenue retention which means from customers that are paying you 100 pounds today how much are they paying you in a year's time which which takes into account churn but also upsell so you kind of take a number of uh sort of elements within the business and try and work back from that one number so it's not a case of just saying well let's apply the multiple that goes to salesforce etc mm-hmm. it's kind of it's trying to work down into something that's a bit more appropriate for for an early stage business but as i say it's a tool and this is a guide it is not a it is not a science you know and and the thing that really really sort of would impact your your sort of decision to go off piste as it were, would be kind of the quality of the management team. So you will pay a higher multiple and higher valuation for a business that's got the third time management team who've been there, seen it and done it twice before. Yeah. And there's a couple going around the market now who are raising capital who've been there, seen it and done it, been through one business, exited it, been through another business, exited it, been through another business and you know, and, or starting another business. You, know, you, you will pay a premium for that. Similarly, first time founders or or people who've not got the sort of the the well-rounded team that you might be looking for, yeah, you, know, you they I think they'll struggle to sort of get that premium on valuation. And and when we're looking at it from a venture ventures perspective, yeah, you know, effectively it comes down to the big things from our consideration would be management, quality of management team, their experience. And also, just how much we want to work with them. So, you know, cultural fit is really important because you're going to spend a lot of time with these people. Um, You've got to really like them, and and you also get a sense for just there's something about a great founder. Uh, You know, I saw it in particular when I first met Matt Molding. Right, I I just he had the X factor, whatever it is that made me think. Right, actually, you know, I'd want to go and work for him. Uh, I'd want to go and get involved in this business. John Roberts, Steve Korn's definitely have the same AO, and some of the businesses in our portfolio definitely have it. And then, realistically, the the other part that we spend a lot of time on is what's the momentum in the business? How is the business doing prior to our funding? You know, how quickly are they growing? What are the proof points that things are going in the right direction and things are happening? Because one of the things, and that sounds more like
0: the art and valuation than the
1: science. It is. I mean, there's some metrics you can apply to it, like growth rates of revenue, etc. But fundamentally, there's lots and lots of proof points of momentum. It could be, you know, rolling out new technologies. It could be the you know the speed at which they're able to develop their technology. It could just be the number of partnerships they're signing. Or, or a lot of times in SaaS, it's about integrations. Or have they got one, you know, have they started winning bigger customers? Is the average value of the contract growing significantly, you know? It's all of those things that indicate kind of product market fit, which you'll hear a lot of in in venture capital. And it also is evidence that a lot of a lot of times we see founders come and talk to us about raising capital. And it's all and, and sometimes it's a lot of when you give us the money, this is going to happen. And that's very, very hard to prove. That's a lot of belief, isn't it? That's a lot yeah. of you know, or oh, when that when that's gonna when when the money lands, we're gonna do this. Whereas what we're looking to see is, you know, the easiest way I can describe it is we're looking to fan the flames, not start the fire. Right? You know, it's very hard to move a business from a from a dead stop. Mm-hmm. You know, when it's when it's not moving forward, it's not got that positive momentum. What we're looking to do is provide growth capital that allows the business to accelerate to to continue doing what it's you know what it's already doing, not not starting and we we generally don't back pre-revenue businesses for that very reason where we're the most comfortable would be in and around a million quid of of revenue with if it's less than a million pound of arr kind of you know real evidence that or that path to a million is is quite tangible mm-hmm. yeah you know it's it maybe it's a 500 grand of arr but it's currently winning you know, a number of contracts, it's got a big pipeline that we can validate. We can speak to those customers in the pipeline and we can believe that, that those contracts are gonna convert pretty quickly. Or, you know, beyond a million, we're sort of, you know, pretty happy and then it comes down to growth rate. So there's lots and lots that go into valuation. I think if you, if you you if you spend your life looking at valuation spreadsheets, it is interesting, but it isn't the real world and there you know we've been we've been very lucky i talked about you know we we want to win competitive mandates you know we've been quite lucky over over the last couple of years where we've actually been able to win mandates where we're not the ones paying the highest price
0: well this is this is something i was i was I was about to ask because it seems to me that you get founders that are obsessed with valuation achieving the dollar and getting the best price i don't know how common those are um, in terms of it's sort of, you know, always focused on the valuation and, and then pushing the valuation as opposed to people who like trying to push the business to find the right partner for the business. Because people, venture capitalists obviously talk about this and they, you know, they want people they can partner with, not necessarily someone who's focused on the valuation per se. But I have no feeling for what
1: the split uh, amongst founders is. I think you'd find, as with, I'm a, I'm a big believer in most things in life, there's a normal distribution to everything, right? right? So the vast majority sit in the middle, 99% of founders will talk about the value of the relationship and the finding the right funder. There are a proportion of those 99% who actually believe it. And there's a proportion of that who are just saying it because they've got to say it. And then at the very extremes, there are people who will who will say, uh, oh, you know what? The only thing that matters to me is valuation. The only thing that you know, and almost to a certain extent, want a silent partner, and that's totally fine. It's just not for us. Oh. There is definitely, I talk about kind of founder funder fit, which is something I've kind of made up, but it kind of makes sense to me because there is definitely there are there are ty- there are a proportion of founders who are absolutely right for us. They want a real partnership. They want to have an open conversation. They want to access some of the things that we can hopefully help them with post-investment. And they buy into us as a business and our ethos and the way we go about things. we you know, if, if anyone, if people wanted to work out more about Protura Ventures, we, you know, we have lots of stuff on our website. We have like our portfolio playbook, which tells people what to expect post investment. We have an investment playbook, which tells people what they can expect during the process of kind of 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 taking investment from us, or or looking to seek to take investment. And and I'm very I'm very uh, I guess emotional about what we do which is you know, we we want to provide a very different feeling experience for 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 our founders and there are some people who really buy into that and some people who probably think it's it's bullshit right um yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> and, that's to- right. and that's totally fine so going back to my kind of normal distribution there'll be some people who will take a massive valuation discount for the right funder and there'll be some people who would not Budget a penny from that's the highest offer i'm going to take that offer most people are in the middle and if you're in the middle there is room for do you know what i think this partner probably in, hopefully but a another vc could be is going to be the right partner for me. So I'm going to, t- I'm going to accept slightly lower terms or slightly lower valuation or slightly different terms. And those might because,
0: be 5% lower. They're probably not going to take 25% lower, I presume.
1: Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a point where you're not you know, if you, if you're taking your 10 million pre money valuation, right, it, they might say, well, actually I can live with eight, but that, you know, that's at the extremes nine. Yes. <laughs> They're not going to live with five versus yeah. ten, and and to be fair, I'd argue against ourselves, right? If we were at five and someone else is at ten, take take the ten, take the <laughs> ten million valuation, right? Because the relate the relationship would have to be so bloody good to make up for what is you know such a big difference in terms of in terms of uh, dilution, and one of the important factors that we think about a lot is. It's not just what is the valuation of the business, but what does the cap table look like post investment? So have the right people got the right amount of equity? So one of the things that we see a lot is people who've raised money previously, they've either raised money at a stupidly high valuation from from maybe crowdsourcing or you know crowdfunding whatever, or or maybe they've been diluted far too much by previous funders and and actually, you know I saw one business the other day. 72% of it was owned by VCs, you know, and then there was a litany of people who all owned bits and pieces, previous founders, previous management. It was just a mess. And actually, it made it very, very difficult to invest in the business because the alignment was wouldn't have been there for anybody. You know, the people, had it gone well, the people who should make money the wouldn't have made money. The founders, yeah, the yeah. founders should make money. That post-investment cap table is really important. And one of the things we see quite a lot is kind of you're doing a deal with the business. You might go in at a lower valuation generally, but then incentivize the management team who might have been previously diluted too much to really drive their performance. You know, we want we want founders to make money in you what know, working with us. It is no good if, like, we think, well, we've got a great deal – and the founder sat there really pissed off because he's got 3% of the business that he founded, you know, 7 years ago and he's put 7 years of blood, sweat and tears into it and they're signing up to put another 5 years into it. You know, it's just not it doesn't feel right and there is a feeling there is a you look down the cap table at the end and I spend a lot of time in our investment committee, you know, that cap table and just be like if this goes well, are the right people earning money? And there are ways of and there are ways of sort of you know adjusting for that and that's all part of the valuation mix as well because if you are going to incentivize the founders you need to factor that into the you know the the, the equation looking forward so there's a hell of a lot of that goes into valuation there's a hell and, and of and lot how, written-
0: how much do finders appreciate these issues because I know we've had a couple of guests in the past particularly in the seed space who say usually when founders come in, they've really got to talk them down in valuation because they know, at the C stage, they probably know somebody who's raised at 10 million or something and you've got this absurd one and they think, every every founder thinks their company is the most brilliant company in the world, almost understandably, and they think, I deserve the same valuation as you know the, the, this, this miracle one. Um, yeah. And, and there's all these other dynamics playing in as well. I think
1: it's quite easy to castigate founders for that, right? But, as a founder myself, who's built a business, we've raised capital for the for the business. I think you can I think it's natural to think your business is great. Mm-hmm. I think it's natural for you to want the highest valuation. I think mm-hmm. the very best founders, and remember, that's what VC is all about finding the very best founders. Mm-hmm. It's not finding the average the average founder who who's building an average business, you're looking for the absolute very best. The absolute very best, they're kind of aware that. Yes, they do want that. And they'd be delighted if that was to happen. But I think they also know that some of these things that are reported in the press are outliers. I think they also know that there's quite a lot of what would I say, misinformation within that founder community founders tell the, you know, our valuation was this, they don't talk about the fact that there might be some esoteric, you know, preference stack that kind of actually means the valuation might not have been quite as high there's a natural tendency i think from founders to just inflate their valuation you you, you see press releases all the time right you know and you know the situation you see a press release that says they've raised 20 million quid or they've raised 25 million quid and you know i'm like. I know what that deal was and they didn't raise really <laughs> anywhere near that. And what they've done is they've added all the money they've had in the last three years together and announced it. what Like there's a bit of misinformation. So, and I think, fa- I think the very, very, very best founders appreciate that. So I think I wouldn't, i wouldn't say it's a massive thing that we spend all our time basically trying to beat founders around the head and say no no you're not worth this you're worth that i think what we would try and do is say you know if a founder comes to us and says right i've got this business i've got 500 grand of revenue and i think it's worth 50 million quid we we would very be pretty honest and be like it's highly unlikely we'll ever be anywhere near that valuation so if you can get somewhere near that valuation great crack on let's not waste each other's time business might look really interesting we're not going to be at that level so why don't we reconvene if you don't manage to to achieve that and and i think that's probably the easiest way of moving those things forward because if they start with a crazy valuation expectation even something that's you know, a significant discount to that valuation is still on the crazy side. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, we just, we'd just rather not be involved in that because the worst thing you can do in that scenario is you know is, is fall in love with the, with the company mm-hmm. and then try and justify why it might be worth 50 million quid. Because I promise you, a, a business with 500 grand, the revenue is so rarely worth 50 million quid, it is untrue. I'd rather just not look at them. It's the same point as, and I talk about this a lot internally. If it doesn't fit our investment criteria on the face of it, don't meet the founders. Because the problem you get then is you 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 meet them, they're great, you you you're like, I love it, I think this is brilliant. But it doesn't it's not what we invest in. And now you're in this position where you're trying to justify why this business that you've fallen in love with you want to invest in <laughs> but it doesn't it's not what our fund does yeah. it it's just much hard. easier it's just much easier to be disciplined at the beginning before you've before you've had that chance right and i think let's say going back to the valuation point you you can tell uh, it's a thing that we talk a lot about in vc it's a thing that vcs talk to each other about it's a thing that founders talk to each other about it's a thing that founders and and vcs talk together about mm-hmm. There's lots and lots of talking there are some site there's some metrics that you can use to try and put yourself within a range but ultimately it comes down to how confident are you as a vC that this business is going to go on and do something great and how confident are you that these people that you're looking to back and it's always the people are exceptional and have they got the proof points with the momentum to prove you know prove that they are exceptional, you know, because some people come in and you know they're terribly awesome, and then you sort of look at the business and nothing's happening. Nothing, you know, you're like, well, okay, that like maybe that's maybe maybe that's the real story, and maybe they're not as exceptional as you think. It it's very much uh, everything's into the mix, and I know that, you know, I've talked probably for. For well, quite a while now about valuation, and probably said not a lot of it, not a lot of firm things that people can take away and say that's what it is. But that's because it is a bit nebulous. It is yeah. a bit, yeah, it is a bit opaque. It is a bit, you know, sort of judgmental. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe I can
0: you... dig in a couple of specific scenarios because I've been interested in your perspective on, on on two two problems that that fund managers, I think, in particular deal with. So the first is, you mentioned way towards the start of our conversation that valuations were really high last year. Yep. How do you as a fund manager deal with that? Because, you know, everyone thinks of the old Chuck Prince, you know, the music's playing, you've got, to, you've got to get up and dance. You as a fund manager have been given funds, you have to invest, you're mm-hmm. investing in an environment where valuations across, uh, generally, well, are higher, higher than you might
1: like. How do you handle that? Well, one of the things is yes, you're in. A, you are right. There is definitely a point of you've got you've got funds to manage and investments to make, and you 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 are trying to find the best opportunities within within that market. Uh, the other thing I said right at the beginning of this conversation was that the 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 little part of the world we live in, the sort of seed to series A in the UK and in particular in the north, yeah. slightly insulated. Because you're based right? in Manchester. We're based in Manchester. We're we're back mainly northern founders and that is a slight insulation you know we see a lot and it comes back to the point you made before about a founder coming with unrealistic expectations because someone they know raised money at a crazy valuation those crazy valuations happen more in america
0: mm-hmm.
1: behind america those crazy valuations happen more in london and therefore we're slightly insulated from 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 that thing and uh, the, we've not yet managed to find a way of proving you know the valuation discount for northern businesses 25 percent, but it's true it's definitely it's definitely something that exists you know and therefore we've been slightly interested from it and and i think you know within that sphere were the valuations we paid slight you know last year for new investments slightly higher than they probably will be this year yes almost certainly almost certainly true i think if you found a vc who didn't say that they'd be lying because because you are just in the world you're in do i think that our valuations the the real issue would come if you were paying you know 70 percent less today than you were a year ago and that's just not the case so I what do you say, think
0: is how much lower do you
1: think it is full park 10 to 20 you know i think i think that's probably probably about where we would see it um we were never in the ballpark of paying you know 20X ARR or 100X ARR, you know, so probably people talked about 10 times revenue last year, and they're probably talking about seven to eight times revenue this year. Some VCs are lower than that, but I don't think they're going to win many of the best mandates. Our valuations are definitely lower this year than last year. And what will happen in that is you'll see that Come through in in sort of valuations for follow-on fundings from deals from from that vintage, right? Um, whereby, you know, a flat round might not be the end of the world this year versus last year, or a business that might appear to have done super super well, you know, doubled revenue again and really on the, really on up, might have only inched their valuation up slightly. So, take take a business like patchwork health it was one of our sort of favorite businesses in our portfolio we first invested in january 2020 it's all right yeah january 2020 uh, about 600 grand of arr real very obvious path to a million arr and we pay we we invested at 10 million pre money so just north of 10 times arr that business has now grown to about 5.4 million arr in 2 years Um, And we've invested a 10 million pre-money, 20 million pre-money, and then it's just got a funding round away at raising 20 million quid at 32 million pre-money. I think had that growth story happened a year prior, Mm -hmm. I think that 32 million valuation would have been significantly higher had we been in that position last year. What that would have meant was our, our sort of valuation increase in on the investment would have gone would have been higher last year than it is this year the business is still a great business the, the business i think will go on and become worth way north of 100 million quid and you know hopefully fingers crossed could be worth a lot lot more than that but i think that that valuation point is very much a driven thing from from the market where where i think if that had been a year ago it would have been you know probably more like 40. You might have even managed to get. You know, might have even managed to get fifty.
0: Yeah, and that and that leads me on to the sort of second topic I wanted to sort of throw at you, which is kind of down rounds. So, if listeners don't know what down round is, it's where a valuation round is lower than previous a previous round, and generally, venture capitalists have an aversion to them because they feel it signals that the business isn't progressing. Is it in the current circumstances? there's a greater chance we're going to see more down rounds around. Yep. What are your thoughts on how you think about them and and, and 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 how you look at them?
1: I think the first point I would say is I've never really understood the aversion to a down round. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand why that's such a big thing. And you see, I, we do see it quite a bit where a VC, where other VCs... Will almost tie themselves up in knots to try and not make it a down round. You know, there's there's lots of structuring involved, and lots of if this happens, then we get this much return, and if that happens, then you like lots of lots of things that are put into a to a term sheet and a structuring of of a deal that effectively means it is effectively a down round, but we're just going to make the price seem like it's not a down round because for some reason people are afraid of it. Personally, I think I think I've, there's a market-to-market market issue for some managers. There is, but I think that's more about having an having a conversation with your investors, your LPs, your, your if in the case of an AIS fund, the people who have invested in the AIS fund. Right, we're very, very clear with our with our with our investors, which is yeah, we will get some failures. The failures are probably going to come earlier the the we, the valuation we will you know we will mark to in the mark to market thing is the last price paid for a share in that business by an institutional investor, so it means that you basically you know, and if that is lower than the price we paid last time, so be it. Right, all it is is a is a is a valuation on a piece of paper mm-hmm. at that moment in time. Yeah, you know, you have a question about whether, I think the bigger question for down rounds generally is should you really be back in the business again, you know, and that comes to if, if you're following on or if someone else is just coming in and you've, you know, you've fed to just got a new investor in because you're right, a down round isn't generally a good sign of good things. It's not quite gone to plan, but that that happens, right? And we've had businesses in our portfolio that are now absolute superstars that probably 18 months ago, we were sat there going, Jesus, this hasn't gone quite to plan, And, you know, and it may have had a a down round or, you know, one of them had a future fund round that, you know, wasn't a high valuation, but do you know what, since that's happened, the business has absolutely flown. So net net, we're all in the same position, which is actually the business is likely to be a real, a success story of ours. It had a down round in it because at the time when that right funding was required, it wasn't exactly flying, but people saw the opportunity. And I think when you remember a down round or a valuation at a point in time, other than exit is just a number on a piece of paper that is an indicator of future success. I don't know why people are so scared of them. I think it can only be because they've not had the honest conversation with their investors or LPs that says, you know what, venture's really hard. Venture capital is not a linear straight line from invest at this price and sell it for 50 million quid down the line and make you three, four, five, six, seven, eight times money on your on your investment, right? It's not a linear progress. Businesses don't always just perform immediately post your investment or consistently all the way through because they're early stage businesses and founders are learning their trade often on the job. So I guess, yeah, will we see more down rounds this year? Yes, you will. Uh 100% you will. Will you see VCs manipulating their down rounds to make it feel like they're not a down round, even though they really are? Yes, you will. Will investors see all that? Probably not, because it's hard to look through the specifics of the deal. But, yeah, there'll there'll be... there'll be good businesses that raise money on a flat valuation this year and there'll be businesses that haven't quite performed that will raise money at a lower valuation than they did a year ago. Whether that's an issue comes down to what the business eventually sells for or what the price paid for a share at the exit is achieved for the investors. If it's, I'll take an example, 10 million pre-money last year and it's, you know, it goes down to 8 million pre money this year, but it raises money and it's still got an opportunity to grow and go and become an ex a great exit. The actual impact of that eight versus the 10 is pretty minimal. It's just not a lot of incremental dilution, which is ultimately what the issue of a down round is a down round creates more dilution than you're hoping for when you first did the deal. But the actual, v- the actual value shift for that is not as massive as it, it sounds worse than it is. Now, well, clearly, at an absolute extreme, I think Klarna was valued at sixty odd billion, and and written up at that valuation has now decided it's worth seven billion. I personally think it's worth way less than seven billion because buy now, pay later is horrendous and shouldn't be shouldn't be allowed and should be regulated. But that's an entirely separate point for <laughs> that's my <laughs> own view. But you know that down round, massive issue, right? I think it's the biggest ever write down that's ever existed in the world of venture capital. It's huge, it's billion. it's tens of billions of pounds. You know, it's up there with WeWork as being <laughs> an absolute disaster. But in the realms that we're talking about, down rounds unless it's an a- absolute car crash of a down round, you know, where you're sort of putting rescue money in at a couple of million quid valuation you did it at 20 million a year ago. I mean, I'd really ask the question about whether that down round should exist. If it's if it's only if it's such a big down round from what you're doing as a seed and Series A investor, does the business actually deserve the the capital? Because again, this is something I'm not sure. Of, you know, this is one thing that I think when you look, when you're dealing with with VCTs or EIS retail retail focused venture capital, right? I think there's a fear of downrounds and there's a fear of businesses going bust.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I think that drives most v c s to follow on in too many of the businesses. I think you've got to relate like, i think. There will be failures in venture capital. It is what it is. What happens? Yeah. It, it is it is part of doing. It is the cost of doing business. Yeah. You know, when you realise that with an EIS fund, you know you can have a fund of eight businesses. Seven businesses can go completely bust. If you get three and a half times on the eighth, assuming they're all the same size investments and all that sort of stuff, the the end investor actually doesn't lose money with all the tax reliefs in it. Right. That's the beauty of EIS. To expect to invest in an EIS fund and have no zeros is ridiculous.
0: It's it's kind of interesting because I sometimes come across managers who's, who haven't had any failures probably yet, and they're kind of bragging that they haven't had any failures. And at the back of my mind it's like, Well, that's fantastic. Are you lucky? Are you doing something that, you know, are you just not mature or are you actually doing something here to sort of keep these businesses going when possibly you shouldn't? Uh, And naturally, I'm suspicious.
1: Let me tell you, so before we launched our first fund in 2019, we'd been doing venture capital for uh, eight years, sort of deal by deal. Mm, yeah. So this is, uh, you know, so we raised money deal by deal from investors. And you look back at our returns over that period, and the one thing I could say we definitively got wrong, we backed the losers far too much. So we would go out and raise, and, and it was always in, you'd raise a little bit of money, right? You'd always raise just a little bit more. A it's little a little
0: bit, bit bridging rounds, a bridge to a, a bri- nowhere, a, a, bridge round, a bridge
1: to nowhere, a little bit more, a little bit more. And we had some absolutely fantastic returns. You know, we've had we've been very lucky. We had like a 20x return. We had a 16x return. We've had a number of sort of four and five x returns. And our overall portfolio from that period, 2011 to 2018, is really strong. I think we think when it all when it all nets out, it'll be about four times money on 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 the investments. We were making. We made quite a few follow-on bridge rounds, as you call them. To businesses, and none of them worked. Not one. Hmm. Like, <laughs> and you look back, and you look, you, you know, when you spend time and you've got that history of kind of having been doing this now for for twelve years, you can look back and say, Do you know what, that was our mistake. We definitely cost our investors money. Overall, probably okay net net across the entire portfolio but we definitely made that mistake and if and if there's one thing that i'm really you know passionate about with pro is we try our absolute best not to keep not to repeat those mistakes and that is not to say that we won't make follow-on investments that eventually don't work mm-hmm. because nobody As you say, has that.
0: It's, it's, it's what what you do in venture capital
1: it's yeah. We will definitely make first investments that don't work. We will definitely make first investments, and then follow-on capital that will not, that does not work. It you know it, the business does not does not achieve. But I think if you go into the mindset of a VC thinking right, I don't want to tell our invest our retail investors that we've had a down round. I don't want to tell our retail investors that this one's gone. This one is going to be a zero. You start doing things that aren't right for the for the wrong reasons you'd start you start trying to you know if we just give that a bit more money it'll carry on and if we just that kicks that can down the road for for 12 months you know we're going to have some failures we're going to have some fail i i would imagine we're going to have some failures this year we've got businesses in our portfolio we will not follow on on. and then they're obviously they're going to go and try and raise capital but they might not And I just see that as being part and parcel of VC. You are, it's really easy as a VC. And it's the most, it's the best part of the job when you're talking about all your winners, your things that you (laughs) love, the things that are going brilliantly, the things that are doubling every year. And you're like, isn't this amazing? Aren't we great? Sometimes you've got to deliver bad news. Sometimes you've got to have really, sometimes you've got to be able to say, do you know what? We got that one wrong. That one didn't work we did it with absolute earnestness when we invested we genuinely believed what we were trying to do we thought this was a re- great opportunity but do you know what it just didn't come off and you just have to accept it like and tell people and i think our experience is you know we had our first business go bus three months ago within our 2019 fund we didn't follow we didn't provide any follow-on capital it wasn't able to raise any more money. It went, it, it went the wrong way. We rang every single investor in our twenty nineteen fund and told them what had happened, and then obviously followed up with email and all that good stuff. Pretty much, to a person that we spoke to, they were like, "Yeah, thanks, for, thanks for letting me know. Absolutely no issue. You said this would happen. You know, we know where we are with the rest of the portfolio. Thanks for letting me know. Zero problem." Like genuinely, presumably that's
0: partly because you have other things in the portfolio that are doing better.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, you, you got to look at it across the ho- across the whole thing. And if we said, you know, here's ten businesses we've invested, and all ten are going to go going to go the wrong <laughs> way, I'm not sure that conversation would be as easy. Yeah, but 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 as a you know, as a fund manager doing this for sort of you know that twenty nineteen fund was the first fund we raised with you know with from some IFAs and and a network outside of our close network of of, of high net worths. Was it? Were we looking forward to that conversation? No. Did did we want to do deliver that news? No, obviously. But actually, when you delivered it, people are completely understanding. It's just one of those things. I think it comes down to. I think just a little bit of how you, if you tell all your investors who invested in your funds that everything's going to go great and we're going to make 10 times money and aren't we all going to be happy with that, they will be disappointed if, you, if, if things go bust because you've, you've told them something that's just not realistic. If you've told them that, you know, you're going you're to give them a diversified portfolio of eight to 10 businesses that, you know, some of them will, we hope that some of them will go really, really well. We hope that some of them will be in the middle, and they won't be great investments, but they won't be terrible. And some will, some will not work. You know, and when they don't work, we'll try and get your money back, but we might not be able to. You know, if you tell them that, and that's what happens, they should be okay. Yeah, so it's a it's a really interesting one. And the down going back to your original question, I'm sure this answer has been a long rambling, com answer <laughs> to a question that you thought yeah. might be a might be a one word. Well, no, answer.
0: I, I, as you said, you know, valuations are not, not science. If it was a science, this would have been a really short conversation. So
1: <laughs> it would have been. Yeah, I'd have just sent you the spreadsheet and would yeah. have been done with it. Uh, but yeah, no, the 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 down round, the the sort of you know, the 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 losses, it's just part of doing what you do.
0: Yeah. Yep. Okay, so our conscious time is moving on. So, what I'd like to do now is move on to our favourite questions. So, we'll throw these at you, and we'll get some brief answers from you.
1: I noticed the the emphasis on brief. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's, <laughs> I've that's too long for everything else. That's
0: absolutely fine. I've enjoyed the conversation. So, I hope the <laughs> listeners have been too. What was the most recent publicly announced investment you made, and why did you make it?
1: We invested in a business called Modern Milkman, which is a Manchester-based tech business that has absolutely flown during the pandemic. So it's a business that's grown uh, over the last three years from kind of zero revenue to 50 million. Uh, the important thing is uh, for us, very much about sustainability, the business has positive unit economics. So if you think about the world of you know five-minute or 10-minute grocery delivery, mm-hmm. Q-commerce, All of those business models are predicated by losing money. VC dollars are effectively subsidizing a service that can't be bought for the price they're selling it for. The the reason we invested in Modern Milkman was the business has grown absolutely phenomenally. Clearly, COVID has been a a benefit to the business. But we can see now within their uh, 20 hubs, about 10 are profitable. And actually, there's a path, there's a real path to profitability in the UK operations. They're just launched in France, and that's starting really well. And I think, you know, so I think the business has got great fundamentals, is doing something great with sustainability, so no plastic packaging, everything's in milk bottles, things like that. And then Simon, the founder, Simon Mellon, is just a phenomenal character. And, you know, he's a blankish lad. He's just got an amazing grip on the entire business for a business that's grown that quickly. You know, his knowledge of all of the of every intimate part of the business is phenomenal, and I just think he's an exceptional founder. Um, and we're very lucky to be part of part of that that growth journey. So the next
0: question, I suspect you've already given a strong hint in the conversation earlier about how you're going to answer it. So in the classic VC triumvirate of market, product, and management, we know they're all important, but which for you is the most important?
1: Management, 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 management. <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> like this. I, that this good I was like, 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 management, we, so of those triumvirate, like, yes, market's important, yes, Product is important, but to me, it's management momentum proof that they're moving in the right direction before we get involved. And management is absolutely critical. Okay. <laughs> Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. I fail all the time. I think, and I think that's something that VCs don't admit very easily. Uh, I don't really understand why, but. You know, if you think about kind of our growth of the business from of Pratura the group yeah you know, we've missed budgets we've failed we've hired the wrong people we've had to get rid of them we grew too quickly we've you know we had to really work out where we were with, within the pandemic i've made loads of mistakes tons and tons which is why you know when vc has this reputation for kind of really punishing founders for making mistakes i think it's nuts because we Every founder is going to make mistakes as they grow the business. You know, it's about the zooming out and seeing the trend rather than looking at the one one mistake. So, I've made absolutely tons from a very specific VC perspective. We I, we talked about it before. We prior to sort of launching our first fund, we definitely followed on in too many in, in too many of the sort of less good companies, and that hasn't been a successful strategy. I think that's something that we learn to just be really, really, really careful about. Yes, there is a time to follow on a business that isn't performing, but it isn't every single time. And you have to ask yourself, is this capital really a good investment or is it trying to save that capital Mm -hmm. that's already been invested?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We had Tom Britton on last year and he's done some sort of research and he looks at Business Angels and business angels following on generally lose money, or on average? hundred percent. I mean, no, they don't all lose money, but on average.
1: That's an, interesting, that's an interesting debate, because one of the things, so I know this wasn't one of your questions, but just if I, if I may, one of the things that we really learn, and one of the things that we do now in our, in our fund is, when you have a winner, the importance is to absolutely pile in, so one of the things what we're trying to do and it was I guess the simplest way of looking at it is if you again normal distribution so you have your portfolio of companies and you have some that are on the left hand side which of confidence which would be this isn't really going to plan and on the right hand side you might have the ones that are, you really think are going to go really well and you might have a normal distribution there. you have the same number of people in column 5 the really positive ones mm-hmm. as you have in column 1 the oh shit this isn't quite going to plan if you take a view of you know Every time you get the opportunity to, you know, follow on into those businesses in column five, your actual weight of capital shifts to the right. So you've got the same number of businesses in sort of column one and column five, super low confidence, super high confidence, but your actual weight of capital shifts way towards that, that thing. So follow ons, follow on funding is really important. It's really important not to follow on for the wrong reasons, but equally, you know, with patchwork, as we talked about before, one of you know, one of the Best business in our portfolio, the one we like the most. We first did 1.8 million of funding in the first the first deal. We've now got about five and a half million of our capital in the business because we just think it's we think it's such a great opportunity. It's proven during its life with us that you know it's going in the right direction. And actually, if we can keep deploying capital into a business that we know is going in the right direction, that is going to create. a better return than sort of just continuing to spread funds evenly. So I think it's really interesting. I'd really love to see that report because I think in that report, you're probably thinking about that follow on of a business that's not quite performed, it's not quite got going to get to, we just need this. We, as you said, the bridge to nowhere, right? That's not the same as, you know, really aggressively backing a business that you know is going in the right direction. Yeah, you know, and and we have to within the retail fund manager and 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 sort of the way we look, we have to be really careful about how we describe those follow-ons and how much of the capital for new new investors goes into follow-ons. But when it is sort of, if you think about it from a risk-weighted perspective, actually, as I call it, my colloquial northern northern twang, <laughs> piling into a business that's going well, like. That's a great thing to do for an investor. The risk: way to return for that is massive because we know what it is. We know exactly how it's going. We're not we're buying in for the first time, and yeah, yes, you can do all the diligence you want in the world, right? But there's no experience. There's no substitute for just living it and breathing it and being on the board. So. I think it's, I'd love to see the research. I can understand where you might, where that, where that thing might get to. And maybe the issue is for angels, and this is where the angels, it's tricky being an angel, they might not get the opportunity to really pile in. My experience when I talk to high net worths who've done previous angel investing, they often talk about they did this deal, it was, you know, a friend of a friend of a friend's raising money for, for this company, so they do one, one investment into that business, single stock, no diversification, and then they never hear anything ever again until it's time to raise money for it again, when it necessarily isn't the best. So it's not exactly shot the lights out, but they feel compelled to because they're part of it. Whereas if that business, same business has then gone on to be fantastic, VCs like us are probably you know absolutely piling in and frankly, there's no right. Mightn't be no room for an angel, or they might just get their pro rata rights, which isn't the same as piling in. So it is difficult for an angel. Like it is mm-hmm. difficult yeah. for angel yeah. angel investors. And maybe that's where that slight discrepancy from what I would say, because I would think from if when you know if we can fast forward to 20 years from now and look back at what we're doing today, I would think that some of our follow-ons will be the areas where we will make the most money.
0: Okay, so the EIS and VCT industry, which work, is fantastic in many ways, but it's not perfect. Well, how would you like to change it?
1: I think probably SEIS should be extended. I think the amounts that be, we don't do much in the way of EIS, right, but I'm just thinking about the market in general. I think SEIS should probably be extended. I think the 150 grand limit is just too small. It doesn't really do anything. It doesn't really, And therefore, people think they get excited about SEIS, but actually it doesn't really mm. do anything. It's, so it's I think 10 year
0: since that limit was created and
1: it's just, it's not, just not it's right. It's just not the right number. Yeah, you know, I think that would be one. It's mind blowing to me just how manual the process for EIS is. It is like, you know, I don't know whether anybody from HMRC is listening, but it's like they've designed it to be hard and it shouldn't be that hard. So we go out of our way to try and help our investors with, you know, by consolidating all of their tax, tax certificates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, putting on our portal. But it's just harder than it needs to be, you know, you get pre-approval, you then have to send in this form, then you have to send in that form, and then they get things back in, you know, literally, you know, I don't know if any people might not know this, but when we get EIS-3s back to send out to the company, to the to the investors, you know, we get sent an amount of EIS-3s in physical copy. It's it's insane. You know, when we did our first deal, and this, admittedly, this was back in 2011, we, we did Inspired Energy and then we floated it and we did another EIS raise on the float. We obviously had a lot of investors at that point because there was a lot of, I think we ended up doing like 600 EIS3s. We had people in our office at the time handwriting out EIS3s for a period, like for a couple of years. It's just insanely difficult. I will say we now have technology that allows us to do them and print them and send them. But even so, it's still stupidly hard for something that if it's been pre-approved and the deal is what said, should just be a tick box and happy days, move on. Shouldn't take you know, eight weeks, nine weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks in HMRC approving something they've already pre-approved. So
0: what do you wish you knew when you started Pritura that you know now?
1: Everything, <laughs> everything. I knew absolutely nothing. I was about to, I was about to say FA there. Uh, I knew absolutely nothing when we started Bradura. I was 29 years old. I had worked in an investment bank, which spent. I think the culture of the investment bank was to try and tell us we were the best of the best, and you know, frankly, a bit of an arrogant knobhead. Um, if I'm honest. I thought I knew absolutely everything and I thought everything was gonna work out the way that my little PowerPoint spread or my little PowerPoint pack said or the way this spreadsheet worked or just I just I just thought I knew everything and and I realized I learned I, I knew absolutely nothing. And the biggest thing I think, you know, that I would say I wish I'd learned was you can learn loads from mentors. And it took me bloody ages to work out work that out. So, you know, to give you a flavor of just sort of that pandemic was obviously really harrowing for everybody that, you know, that first few months that April um, and May post post the beginning of the pandemic, really scary. And I started talking to Steve Corns, who was CEO, CFO of AO. And he was, he happened to be an investor in our fund. I didn't know him very well so this is 2020 and sort of had an ad hoc conversation that became a weekly conversation, became like a formal mentoring, became a sort of, I guess, one of those crutches that you rely on as a a founder. He eventually became chairman of Protura Ventures. He put money into Protura Group. And I realized after nine months of Christmas 2020, I'd learned more about running a business in nine months working with Steve than I had in nine years of sort of just doing things as I thought was right to do. And actually that's the beginning of our operational partner program with Ventures. So I thought to myself that Christmas, like how awesome would it be if every founder within our portfolio had access to someone like Steve? And so we've gone away and sort of got, we've now recruited eight people who are all of the similar sort of background to Steve. So we've got, you know, ctos who've sold the business for 200 million quid we've got don mcgregor who was co-founder of social chain we've got colin green who three years ago was reporting to tim cook in apple in cupertino having run apple career in apple japan you know he's now come back to the northwest for personal reasons he's one of our operational partners and these people helen verwutus um was chief people officer at dr martin's until float when it floated for several billion these people are only working Pratura to help founders post investment to help them build the best business they can. and the idea is they are related to Pratura as in you know they're w- one of our operational partners but they're not so in so, not so sort of instilled within Pretura. they're not employed by Pratura that they can act as that real mentor for founders in our portfolio. They can either help with situational problems or help with just general mentoring. That has allowed us as a business to actually take what we've always wanted to do, which is be founder founder focused and help them build a great business post-investment. But I had no idea how to do that at scale until we we stumbled across or I stumbled across this operational partner method, which is you know, for every business we now add, every time we add three businesses to our portfolio, we add another operational partner. And that is something that The power of mentorship, the power of learning from people who've been there and seen and done it, is so important and so powerful. And that's something I wish I'd learned a long time ago. Mm. The reality is, when I was thirty, I probably thought I knew well. I thought I knew everything anyway, and (laughs) I probably wouldn't have wanted the mentorship. You wouldn't have listened to them. (laughs) I wouldn't have listened to them because I was a, I was again. I was about to swear. Uh, (laughs) I was an absolute idiot. Um, (laughs) Like. And I probably still am a little bit, but at least I'm You're aware of my, at least I'm aware of my own uh, fallibility now. And that, that is something I really wish I'd known. I really wish I would had the humility at the time to understand that I knew the square root of nothing, that there is an absolute power in learning from people who've been there, seen it and done it. And that, Really, that that whole sort of learning piece is something that we actually now start looking for in businesses we're about to back and founders, you know, that whole kind of we're looking to work with founders who appreciate they might not know everything. Yeah, we want them to, it's a real dichotomy, right? You want them to be super, super positive on where they're gonna take the business and almost have that kind of zeal and 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 just enthusiasm for where they're gonna go and the kind of nothing's gonna stop me attitude. At the same time, you want them to be self-aware enough to know, but I might not know everything. And actually I could learn stuff from people. And that's something we really try and drill down to that coachability of a founder, that sort of the ability of a founder to get better because they've had more experience, but also get better because they're learning all the time. you know, not just, well, I'm, I'm me and I'm great and I'm going to build the world's biggest unicorn ever, right? Which is part of what we want, but just maybe not quite so uh up front it's a it's a it's a it's a strange one but that you can definitely sense when people are are there to it's not and to be clear it's not learning from me right it's not it's not taking advice from me it's taking advice from people who've really been there seen it and done it that's very interesting
0: so if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at pretura where should they go
1: the website preturaventures.com or probably the other way would be following me on LinkedIn i have i put a lot of my nonsense out on on linkedin and that'll give you a good flavor of who we are as a business and what we're what we're trying to do but um yeah ventures website or my linkedin would be places to find us
0: we'll post links to both of those in the show notes so thank you very much thank for coming you. on today dave that's been really <laughs> i really enjoyed that conversation it's been really interesting. <laughs> so
1: thank you thank you no really really enjoyed it thank you very much
0: So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanandco.com forward slash podcast. If you really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at hardmanandco.com Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.